This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at current films and compares them to films and genres and actors and directors from years gone by. And uh, my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this week, we're taking a look at the long and very fruitful career of actor and icon Jane Fonda, thanks in part to a recent showcase of her work that's featured on the Criterion channel. But we'll also step outside those bounds, and hopefully you'll find some of her work to explore through our own exploration. And we'll see you right after this. Stephen, it's great to be talking to you again here on Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast. And uh, today, as you mentioned, we're talking about Jane Fonda. She's a two-time Academy Award winner for Clute and Coming Home. She was also nominated five other times for They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Julia, The China Syndrome, On Golden Pond, a film that she made with her legendary father. And the morning after. We'll be talking about most of these films today uh, in the next hour. Uh, Jane Fonda, of course, is also an activist infamously protesting the Vietnam War, where she made a lot of friends and a lot of enemies. Uh, and she became known as Hanoi Jane. And in the 1980s, she had that line of massively popular exercise videos. She's probably the biggest icon in her impressive Hollywood family, and that's saying something given that her father was was Henry of Grapes of Wrath fame, and uh, her brother Peter was sort of a counterculture icon from his work in Easy Rider and uh, a lot of other films. He had a pretty successful career as well. Sadly, of course, they both passed away. Um, now... Jane Fonda is now in her 80s. She's still working. She's in the popular TV comedy with Lily Tomlin called Grace and Frankie about two women whose husbands run off together. Uh, You know, I've always respected her work without, I guess, being a big fan. Uh, Not long ago, I rewatched Nine to Five, the workplace feminist comedy she did with Dolly Parton and and also Lily Tomlin. And it was great. I think it aged really well. so that's one I would recommend for folks. Uh, and uh, when I'd heard her work was being getting this focus on the Criterion Channel, this I, I think we both figured why not watch a bunch of her films, some of which we had seen before, some of which we hadn't for Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, there are nine titles on the streaming service. We didn't get to all of them, but we, uh, as you say, we strayed off that list for other material. We watched the, there's a great documentary about her on Crave called Jane in Five Acts that reveals sort of the person beneath, behind the act. Uh, and about her difficult relationship with her father. And she has a newish movie from 2017 that reunites her with Robert Redford, a frequent co-star of years past. And that movie is called Our Our Souls at Night. It's on Netflix. We're going to talk about that in a second. Stephen, I was trying to think about what the first movie I saw her in and I think maybe it was Barbarella, the the 1960s sci-fi sex fantasy, which I recall, at least in my teenage years, having a, you know, when I was exploring science fiction, I was like, oh, I've got to see this. And I kind of enjoyed it, even though it's a big kind of time capsule, a mess of a film from from the 60s. But my dad really loved Cat Ballou. Uh, that was with Lee Marvin in the dual roles as the killer with the metal nose and then Kid Shaleen, the drunk gunfighter. Uh, so I saw that when I was a kid, for sure. But that's also amongst the films on the Criterion channel right now. And I think 
maybe, you know, people want to check that out. It's it's not aged super well, but it's still a, a charming film. And it won Lee Marvin, I think, his only Academy Award in that film. Yeah, and uh, it was an award that was kind of contentious, I think, at the time, because he was up against some pretty strong competition that year. I can't remember off the top of my head who it was, but it was a, it was a you know, big year for movies in, uh, in 1965. And yet, uh, Lee Marvin's dual performance is very comedic, uh, performance. Uh, was the one that took the day at the Oscars. Uh, Jane Fonda is certainly someone I've been aware of through most of my life. And I feel like, uh, I didn't really see her, uh, work at her peak until I saw, I think a TV broadcast version of the China syndrome. It would have been like um, the ABC Monday night movie in the early or Sunday night movie in the early eighties or something like that. And then um, I think at some point with the dawn of VHS, I would have gone out and rented a copy of Barbarella at some point, because of course it, it you know, I just, especially, uh, you know, post star Wars, there was this hunger to see anything set in outer space. And of course, Barbarella is like nearly a decade before Star Wars and is quite a different film, uh, you know, in, in terms of its sort of pop art uh, camp uh, uh, cachet and, you know, in a very different chain. It's funny that it's it's just about a decade between Barbarella and uh, the China Syndrome. So, and just to think about all the changes that happened a in society and B in the in the life and career of Jane Fonda between those two kind of poles is uh, is pretty remarkable. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, she was married to the director of uh, Barbarella at the time, Roger Vadim, and uh, yeah, again that that documentary spells it all out. I, in some ways, Fonda Jane Fonda is as much a counterculture icon as her her brother was, but she kind of carried on and became an icon of different eras in a way that not a lot of people in American public life has done, have done. And uh, that says a lot, says a lot for her ambition and her talent. Um, and that talent is still, you know, strong uh, in Our Souls at Night. This is a film directed by Ritesh Batra. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, and it came out in 2017. It's a fair, still fairly recent film. It struck me as kind of the quintessential Oxford movie, remembering the kind of prestige drama that used to show up at that uh, much beloved, much missed single screen cinema here in Halifax, where we are uh, we are recording this. Um, it's an easygoing romantic drama starring Jane Fonda and Robert Redford. They were stars of The Chase in 1966, Barefoot in the Park in 67, and The Electric Horseman in 79. I think those were the three films that they worked together on. Uh, two of those are, are screening now on the Criterion channel. Here in this film, they uh, are small-town neighbors Addie and Lewis, who, finding themselves alone late in, in life, they choose to to keep each other company in the evenings, uh, you know, basically sharing a bed, even though it's, well, at first anyway, not really a sexual thing. This, even though it causes a ruckus in the town full of seniors just like them, what they live in, uh, and uh, things are further complicated by the arrival of Addie's grandson, dropped off by her son, uh, who is played by Matthias Schonartz, who is, uh, I think he's a Belgian actor. He's uh, he's trying hard to hide his accent here. You don't know if he's entirely successful. Uh, and then a dog shows up as well. Uh, we also get moments from Judy Greer and Bruce Dern, who starred with Fonda in They Shoot Horses, don't they? So <laughs> there's a definite sense of reunion here, and it's a lovely showcase 
place for for these actors who are just masters of their craft at this point and uh working together after so long it's it's a real it's a real treat to see them together again yeah i really enjoyed this film i i thought the that comfortable uh relationship between Fonda and Redford works really well here. It's kind of interesting to compare them to those those earlier romances of the 60s and 70s. Uh, there's a lot of water under the bridge, and I, I just found I just found the situation uh, here, you know, very heartwarming, very kind of charming, and and a very realistic look at kind of loneliness later in life and and how people cope with uh, with being alone and you know finding ways to reach out and find some companionship. Uh, you know, she makes the Addie uh, Fonda's character makes the the modest proposal to her neighbor Louis that you know they could maybe just spend time together and just like share a bed in a non romantic way just to have some sort of feeling of closeness and it just that just felt uh, really poignant to me. Yeah, there's a sort of almost progressive thoughtfulness about it that I really appreciated, even though like, you know, everyone in their lives, even people they don't know, seem to be scandalized by this, even, you know, and and it's like, that's the part of it that kind of surprised me. And I guess maybe it's a generational thing. But the fact that the whole town would be completely shocked at two people who are alone, who are who've lost their life partners, you know, and are having to to see out the uh, the their their late life period by themselves wouldn't find some comfort in each other, uh, you know whether it's sexual or not. <laughs> it surprised me that it was so scandalous. But you know who's to say? I don't live, uh, you know Hal- Halifax is, is a small city, but it's not a small town. So and I I'm not at the same age as these people. So generationally, I don't know if I can speak to that being being the the kind of shock that that registered was was a shock to me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I thought it was a lovely film as well. And uh, you know, it's funny. Redford, uh, he's been acting in the last. He's acted a lot in, in the past twenty years. Uh, he's been very busy. But he's kind of cornered the market on the elder introvert, sort of taciturn. Uh, whether it's the sailor in All Is Lost, or his Bill Bryson in A Walk in the Woods, or his gentleman bank robber in The Old Man and the Gun, which is for my money, I think my favorite of his recent work. Uh, here he's. You know, again, typically sort of stolid and serious. Uh, This while Addie is the forthright one, the brave one who sort of suggests this to him. And uh, I I sort of feel like they're they're both cast to type in some respects here. But that's fine because they're just so good. They're so good. Yeah, it's kind of funny how uh, Robert Redford's gone from the you you think of the the wide eyed youth of, of well like barefoot in the park and then you know not too long after that butch cassidy and the sundance kid and and now this like you say they've ta- taciturn kind of older reserved man i mean i it's funny i was watching this film and kind of getting a bit of a flashback to my dad in in some ways in the portrayal that robert redford um gives here which is kind of funny because you know i, I think of like when my parents took me to the sting uh as a kid and seeing uh, a robert redford movie for the first time and 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 maybe having kind of a similar sort of reaction then but but here i was getting a lot of echoes of that in this guy who's you know he's he's vulnerable he's lonely he's he's not terribly close with people but uh but has this kind of charm while still kind of holding the world at at arm's length uh overall and watching him watching him kind of open up and uh you know i kind of wonder you know if my dad was still around what what he would be like in these later years and and this this film i don't 
think he's exactly like that but but i think there are elements there that uh, that i think a lot of other people will you know will probably see this and maybe see something of their own parents in some of these characters oh yeah for sure and uh there's an i won't spoil what happens in the end but there's sort of an embracing of technology in a way that i really liked i thought i thought the ending was very charming and very hopeful which uh which is some part of the reason i really enjoyed the film um and and yeah as you say the they uh they worked together before fonda and redford and uh i watched and i don't know if you rewatched them but i watched barefoot in the park the uh the Gene Sachs film based on the Neil Simon play, which, and for me, that was the first time seeing it. And part of the joy of that film is just seeing Redford and Fonda so young and so vibrant. Uh, they are, uh, uh, Redford plays Paul. He's a conservative lawyer and uh, Fonda plays Corey, who's sort of a wild and impulsive woman. And they've just gotten married and they've, they've moved into a new apartment on Knight Street in New York City, not far from Washington Square. It's a walk up six flights, but apparently the flights are like Everest because the movie gets a lot of mileage out of people barely surviving the climb. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a tiresome gag, but you know, this is based on a play and you can tell that it has that sort of stagey quality to it uh, still. And, uh, but a lot of it is just the charm of the performers and i guess at the time it must have seemed fairly um you know surprising to have a female character here played by fonda who is so sex positive she's clearly the you know the uh the the more forward and more energetic of the two with redford's paul being more conservative and a little bit he actually gets a lot of the best lines in the film because he's kind of the straight man but uh it's it's a it's a sort of charming film. It hasn't aged all that well, but uh, but I, I did enjoy it. The, the plot is kind of thin, but it mostly revolves around these newlyweds not only getting used to their apartment, but going out for dinner with her mother, who she, Corey is trying to set up with their upstairs neighbor, who is basically the Continental, the character that Christopher <laughs> yes. Walken played in Saturday Night Live. He's played by Charles Boyer. He's European. He likes to wear, wear kimonos around the house and cook exotic hors, hors d'oeuvres. Uh, yeah, so it's it's diverting enough, but I think what I maybe enjoyed most about it was just the uh, New York vibe, you know, the exterior shots, seeing New York City in uh, in the winter in the 1960s, because it uh, that and and then of course these these lovely actors in the prime of their youth. Yeah, any Neil Simon film from this period and, and going into the 70s has that kind of time capsule. <laughs> effect i mean barefoot in the park came out in 1967 and it barely acknowledges the world outside <laughs> so, you know it, it it hardly it seems like a film that could have come maybe even a decade earlier um you know if, if given any relevance it might have to to uh the world around it but uh you know like you know for example the park um of the title is actually washington square park you think it would be um central park but it's actually uh, washington square and you know, there are no, uh, you know, hippies or beatniks or, you know, whatever the stereotypes of the day would have been hanging out in the park at all. And it just, it, it feels a little sterile in that way. But, uh, and of course it is Neil Simon. So the dialogue is all very Neil Simon-y, um, which I don't mean to be a pejorative because those films are still very entertaining in their way, but they do feel like they're from another time. But, and, but the play is still popular. It gets performed by like Summer Stock and, 
repertory and amateur theater all over the place uh to this day it's still a still still a popular draw as a lot of his work is so I, I you know i think this work will continue to be enjoyed but i but i definitely don't think it's necessarily timeless as opposed to more of a period piece but but it is interesting to see uh how fonda has progressed as an actor from those earlier films like cat baloo where i guess she was uh basically has to play the straight woman to all these other characters like Lee Marvin and her her brothers and all that kind of stuff and and was not that happy about it she wanted to do comedy and here she actually does get a chance to be funny and uh, you know kind of stands up for herself as in this marriage uh it does feel like kind of a, a marriage of equals even though it does still have that thing where he's he's the breadwinner at the law firm and and she's kind of looking after the apartment uh, you know and clearly you know those stereotypes are going to fall by the wayside um, you know, in her later films, but, but it is an interesting look at how she makes a kind of a formula Hollywood comedy that much better with her performance and her presence. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, uh, she is really fun in the film. She's, she's great. The, as you say, the, the, the themes haven't aged so well. I mean, the, there's at one point her mother basically tells her that the, the secret to success in marriage is to make your husband feel important. Uh, which, uh, I mean, you know, I was rolling my eyes out of my skull at that point. But, um, but you know, she's also in The Chase with Robert Redford. Uh, we didn't watch Electric Horseman. I, I, I'm not sure where you can find it these days. But we did find The Chase because it's one of the films on the Criterion Channel, written by Lillian Hellman and directed by Arthur Penn. And it's a... Uh, it's it's this sort of film. It's set in a small town. It's a uh, it's sort of a, a serious drama. It uh, it's it's got star studded cast. Uh, everyone from Marlon Brando as a mumbling sheriff to Robert Duvall, Angie Dickinson, E. G. Marshall, James Fox with an American accent, uh, and it's a story of a uh, a a guy, the sort of young uh, pride of the town, who you know made a mistake and got sent to prison. He was an innocent man, but he was sent to prison. He's busting out and he's, he's expected to come back to this town. The film takes place over a day and a night and they're waiting for him. And the film basically, it spends the whole t- running time waiting for him to return to town. And that he, that, that guy is played by Robert Redford. Uh, Jane Fonda plays his wife who has maybe not been entirely faithful in waiting for him. A lot of other folks in town are unfaithful. It's a, this is a bit of a class drama and it involves some racial politics and as I said marital infidelity, but it's a little dull. Uh, it's the kind of film that felt like anachronistic once the last picture show had shown up and a lot of those sort of like new American cinema, uh, new wave of American cinema that happened in the late 60s and early 70s. But uh, it is worth seeing for all these actors, I would say. And uh, although it takes a long time getting where it's going, the final act, there is an explosion of violence in a way and a a scene in an apocalyptic junkyard with a lot of burning tires. I like that part of the film. It takes a while to get there, but it it does sort of pay off by the end. Yeah, I was actually looking forward to revisiting this film. I, I feel like I saw it years and years and years ago, maybe on TCM or something like that my memory must be a little clouded because it, it, it is a real mishmash. I mean, it's with, it, with this cast, it's really hard to pass up considering, you know, you've got people like Angie Dickinson who I, I read that she actually has more screen time than Jane Fonda does, but, uh, but, but also with Brando, uh, 
in a in a not terribly committed performance as the sheriff. I don't think I I I feel like maybe he was not maybe he was under contract or something. He, I, I don't think he's fully committed to this role. And uh, and Robert Duvall as as one of the men in the town. It's interesting to see them matched up. Uh, you know, prior to the Godfather, but it's it does a lot of wheel spinning. You know, while we're waiting for uh, Redford's Bubba to or Bubba rather to to finally get home and for the big climax to happen, and and so you've got these parallel tracks that you're waiting to meet up, and it takes about two hours and fourteen minutes to get there, and I, I don't necessarily feel that it was completely worth the wait by the end of it. I I mean, it's if you like uh, that kind of southern pot boiler post Peyton place kind of multi-character overheated drama. I mean, that's it's definitely the vein that this movie is in. It's part of a string of these kind of Southern Gothic kind of movies that Jane Fonda found herself in, in the 1960s. She, you know, she did a Southern accent in um, walk on the wild side, which is, uh, which is part of the package on criterion. And uh, you know, she winds up in a brothel in new Orleans and it's, you know, there's it's very steamy and there's lots of innuendo and that kind of thing. And, you know, this is sort of part of that uh, kind of genre of film that would, in a lot of ways, fall by the wayside once uh, the rating system came into place and movies could be more mature and didn't have to kind of pussyfoot around, uh, you know, normal adult behavior and so on. And I, I was also kind of hoping that, you know, this is directed by Arthur Penn. It's sandwiched between two very... Uh, important films of his one on uh, this comes after Mickey one, which was uh, a really interesting film about a struggling comedian played by um, Warren Beatty. It's shot in the very French new wave style with uh, kind of elliptical editing and a a lot of, um, you know, a lot of interesting cutting and that sort of thing. And then he makes this film, which is fairly conventional Hollywood stuff. And then immediately afterwards he makes Bonnie and Clyde, which kind of blew the doors open in Hollywood and, and made this film uh, almost immediately uh, out of date uh, just one year later. So uh, I guess Arthur Penn and his producer, Sam Spiegel, maybe uh, didn't see eye to eye in the course of making this film because it doesn't have any of the energy of the films on either side of it, Mickey One or Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, and uh, a little bit of trivia uh, written by Lillian Hellman, who Jane Fonda would play later, play, play her as a character later in Julia, which we'll be talking about coming up. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. We're looking at the films of Jane Fonda and an amazing career that she had and an amazing transformation from her first feature in 1960, playing a high school student through a bunch of kind of ingenue roles in the 60s, then the the pop culture, pop art, outer space, sex kitten and Barbarella, at at which point she decided that uh, that's not the kind of film she wanted to make. She did not want to be... Um, stuck in these kinds of roles where she didn't really have any kind of control over what the character was about or or uh, or or wasn't doing something that was advancing her own art as an actor and as a portrayal of of interesting women on screen. And so uh, she makes a big leap forward with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? in 1969. It was directed by Sidney Pollack, uh, who, of course, would, it would uh, be one of the greater directors of the 1970s and into the 80s and it's a remarkable film it's it's a bit of a parable for the times then and it stands up as a parable for the times now as uh, Jane Fonda's Gloria 
meets up with uh, Michael Sarazen's Robert uh, on the Santa Monica Pier. They're both kind of aimlessly drifting through life in the, the Great Depression, and they get caught up in this craze that was happening at the time known as the Marathon Dance Competition, where people would dance for hundreds, perhaps even a thousand hours. These could go on for weeks. Uh, these grueling competitions where where couples had to dance nonstop with a few breaks here and there and, and um, interspersed with these races and things designed to kind of beat them down and wear them down and and they're fairly inhumane hence the title like like it's likened to a a horse race and the fact that you know when a horse breaks its leg they shoot horses don't they and that is uh the implication here that that the people involved in these uh these competitions are basically dehumanizing themselves for the hope of of winning the jackpot and uh you know between gloria and robert uh and and their kind of lack of a dream and just hoping to have something to help them get ahead we also have Susanna York as a wannabe Hollywood starlet who's hoping that being in the competition will raise her profile and help her get a a contract she's kind of a wannabe Gene Harlow character Uh, we have Red Buttons as a character called Sailor who's uh, you know a veteran of these things he's he's been to a bunch of them but he's he's kind of getting on in years and and you kind of worry that he's he's not going to be able to make it through Uh, and Bruce Dern plays a man who's uh, who's there with his pregnant wife. They've been traveling across America taking part in these competitions. And uh, so they already kind of know what they're in for and, and the kind of grueling uh, course ahead of them. And overlooking it all uh, is uh, Gig Young, who won the uh, the lone ass Oscar for this film as Rocky, the MC. He's basically running the competition and he's kind of a monster. You know, he's got the smiley face when he's at the microphone. Uh, you know, give it yowza, up. For these, yowza, yowza, yowza. Yeah, give it up for these <laughs> wonderful kids. They're giving their all and and all that kind of thing. But behind the scenes, he's just a lizard. He's a complete reptile. And, uh, you know, and Gig Young just has that oily uh, kind of greasy demeanor that, that makes it work uh, magnificently. And uh, it's, you know, it's. It's kind of a bridge between the 60s and the 70s. We're seeing some of the 60s visual style, or sorry, the 70s visual style starting to come into play. But there's some aspects of it um, dramatically that still feel like the 1960s. But it, it feels like, a, when you're watching, it feels like a very pivotal film. And and Fonda's world-weary, um, kind of worn-down performance is, is a big part of, of what makes it work so well. Yeah, I like the film. I wondered when you loaned me the DVD and I'd heard about this, like, how can they make a feature film about a story of a marathon dance contest? Like, what's this really about? And what it's about, it's allegorical. It's an anti-capitalist screed. It's a... it's, it shows the incredible suffering that people will go through for money. They'll sacrifice their mental and physical health. They'll work themselves to death for the right amount of cash. And uh, I guess it's yeah, it's very critical of America generally, and uh, uh, and uh, certainly of you know the way in which the sort of society is set up to benefit the few and have the the rest suffer and the suffering is astonishing uh at one point a a character goes squirrely i air quotes here when she thinks things are crawling all over her gloria asks uh gig young's character if he would put her out on the floor and charge extra no he says that's too real um you know, they he, he makes the argument that people want to see a little misery out there so the audience can feel better uh, but not too much misery. So it's interesting. Uh, in some ways, you think you get the sense the organizers are, are as trapped 
as the contestants by this endless dance and they just need to keep the punters coming and keep people paying and they'll do whatever they can to do that. Um, this is a film that has one of the most downbeat endings I've ever seen in a movie next to seven or maybe last exit to Brooklyn. Uh, and I won't spoil it, but, uh, it's all part of the package. Um, and uh, one other thing I wanted to mention about it is it was nice to see Bonnie Bedelia in a film when she was this young. This is uh, she plays um, the uh, Bruce Dern's pregnant partner, and I'll always remember her from Die Hard, which ha you know she made twenty years later. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, there's there's things to recommend in this film, but you got to kind of uh, prepare yourself for it. Yeah, it's it's grim but rewarding. I I I. I felt that this really captured the feel of the era. Sometimes films from the 60s and 70s that are set in the, you know, the past of a few decades before still feel like people in the 60s play acting in the 30s. This uh, I think <laughs> I think Pollock went the extra mile to create that feel of uh, the early 1930s in this uh in this film and and to give a a, a what feels like a, a really authentic portrayal of this I'm hoping short-lived craze. I, I can't imagine that these could have gone on for too many years. Um, but I imagine once they became popular, they, they probably spread from town to town. I'm sure one took place in, in every town going, especially during the depression when people were looking for some sort of hope to cling to. Um, I feel like, uh, I feel like maybe, uh, there's, there was some sort of analogy with Vietnam happening with this film and that, you know, that, that they're, they're in this contest till the end kind of thing. And, you know, we're in it. We might as well keep going kind of, kind of feeling, but, but watching it now, I feel like maybe it could be a retroactive critique on reality television. Maybe I've, you know, I kept getting that sense of it, of, 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 as, as the audience builds in the stands and the dance hall, trying to uh, feed off the, the misery of the characters who are, kind of just winding themselves down on the, on the dance floor. I, I feel that's maybe that's part of the reason why it, why it works that the theme of, of making hay off other people's misery is, is probably never going to get old. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's uh, it does have that, uh, <laughs> that life still in it. And I was really glad to have seen it. Uh, so I don't know if it's available anywhere beyond on streaming services as you know, I, I, I've never seen, I've never seen even a copy of the DVD. I was glad you loaned it to me. Otherwise, I don't know where I would have checked it out. But uh, for people listening, it is worth uh, worth seeking as part of Jane Fonda's, you know, body of work. Um, so we also watched Clute from 1971. Alan J. Pecula directs, and it won Fonda her first Best Actress award it's a detective movie it's set in new york in the early 1970s with this sort of noirish atmosphere fonda plays brie daniels she she's a call girl trying to get a break as an actor uh, in pennsylvania an executive disappears and his friend detective john clute played by donald sutherland comes to new york to investigate his his disappearance it turns out the missing executive might have been a client of ms daniels and wrote letters to her she barely remembers him aside from the letters uh, and the possibility that he might have been violent. But she agrees to help Clute find this man, I guess, concerned with her own safety. She thinks, well, they both think he might still be alive and he might have plans for her and he might, those plans might be violent. Um, so, yeah, so 
Sutherland plays this detective as taciturn, more than a little judgmental, and she's convincingly wound up. She's very, very tense throughout the film. I think Fonda has this intensity, which I think works especially well when she plays characters with a lot of ambition. She is so much ambition in real life, uh, and this character as well really wants to improve her life, wants to get away from this life that she's built for herself. But she's also got a certain amount of pride and control in how she plays this character. This character has enjoys part of her work for the control that she has in it as a, uh, as a prostitute. Uh, and we learn that from her speaking to a therapist we are privy to those sort of therapist conversations uh you know and uh i respect that fonda really chose these kinds of roles these challenging roles uh, uh to push her out of her comfort zone and uh these depictions of independent women making their own choices uh, i'm not entirely sure that that clute isn't being a little judgmental itself on its depiction of some of the sleazier aspects of new york you know more than say midnight cowboy which i felt there was more compassion for the characters and i also didn't I didn't really understand why the film is named after the t detective. Like that to me seemed like a strange thing. Like uh, I feel Sutherland is very much a supporting character in this story, but uh, it was, it still held up. I think, you know, there are aspects of it that are very early seventies, but there are elements that I think still feel a bit universal. And uh, I really, I really appreciated the, uh, the way what the the film really swings for the fences even if it doesn't quite hit the home run if you're you know if you want to go with a sports metaphor that feels like the right one uh fonda's amazing in this film i i, I you know she's just trying to trying to get by as a as an actor slash model and and but of course that's not what's uh paying the bills and and she has this kind of she she is very tense she is very reserved but at the same time you know she's very concerned about being in control uh of of what she's doing and and you know being able to you know be on her own when she wants to be and and to have the say in what happens in her life i i feel that must be what attracted her to the role as she was you know doing the same thing in her in her own life especially as her marriage to vadim you know behind the scenes uh, was was pretty much uh you know falling apart and uh, you know, so so I can see why she's so committed to this role and this performance, and she's and she's so stylish and so commanding when she's on screen. Uh, this this is a a real standout performance uh, by any stretch. Uh, it's fun to see Roy Scheider as her former pimp as a real <laughs> sleazy character. I, you know, I, Scheider was kind of just doing these kind of supporting roles and, and really making his mark at the time before he would go on to get things like the seven ups and of course jaws and, and so on. But um, I, and I, I like the fact that, uh, you know, she kind of stepped out of her own comfort zone by doing her scenes with her uh, psychiatrist, which are kind of sprinkled throughout the movie um, completely improv. They basically did them at the end of shooting and, and she felt by then she had such a, firm grasp on her character that she could just stay in character and do the scenes with the therapist and uh, and just uh, extemporize and just uh, um vivian nathan plays uh plays the shrink and uh i think she's a like a seasoned actor maybe from the from the method or the actor studio and she's able to kind of feed her the questions and jane responds and those scenes are, are pretty remarkable because they do have that 
loose, relaxed sort of feel about them. And it really gives Clute a feel that is unlike a lot of 70s films. I feel like uh, it, it it stands up pretty well today because it, it's trying to do something different. And it's amazing. It's Alan J. Pakula's, it's only a second film, yet there's an incredible uh, visual sense to the film. And, uh, and, you know, he would go on to do the parallax view and all the president's men, which of course were, were big hits and, and are still extremely watchable today. He, I, I've read that he considered this the start of his, uh, his paranoia trilogy because of course, you know, Brie is being followed and her calls are being taped. And then that comes into play in the parallax view and all the president's men. So it's kind of interesting to compare those three films. His career doesn't fare so well after, uh, all the president's men, but he would work with Fonda again on two more films. They obviously had a rapport. And uh, although we won't be talking about them, you might want to check out Comes a Horseman or uh, and maybe even Rollover with uh, Chris Christopherson from 1981. All right. Very good. I definitely want to see those films. Uh, there are many more in her in, in Fonda's uh, filmography that, that remain unseen by me. And uh, so this is just the start. Uh, now, she was also in Jean-Luc Godard and Jean-Pierre Gorin's film, Tout Va Bien. Uh, this is, I'm not a big fan of Godard, and I, I especially not beyond his 60s films. Uh, you know, I, I, I understand that it's impossible not to be curious about his, his work. He's such a maverick, and I can understand why Fonda would work with him, but uh, I, I find his relentless self-consciousness a little pretentious and irritating. So I did not watch Tout Va Bien. Uh, and the other film, another film from this period that, uh, that from the 70s of, of Fonda's that I didn't see but is also on the Criterion channel now is Fun with Dick and Jane. Now, you've seen both of these. Maybe you want to say a few things about them, Stephen. Well, weirdly, they have some similarities. And in uh, in Tu Va Bien, uh, Jane Fonda and Yves Montand are a couple who are having career difficulties. She's a journalist. He's a filmmaker. Um, you know, she's having trouble getting her work published or, you know, finding a home for her work and and he's a filmmaker who's resorted to making commercials and they're not very happy and there is a certain and there is a certain playfulness about the film you know they sometimes talk right at the camera or suddenly break out a character and look at the camera or what have you and and uh they get caught up in a, a fairly absurd situation at a meatpacking plant where she's doing a story and the workers are rebelling against the management but they also have issues with the uh the union leaders and so that turns into this kind of polemic about labor relations with these two stars kind of cut up in the middle of it. At one point you actually see Eve Montand working in the, working in the slaughterhouse and Jane Fonda is making sausages. And I, I feel a lot of it's fairly tongue in cheek. Um, while Godard is also trying to get across his, uh, his revolutionary message. Uh, but it's, uh, if you're not a fan of uh, post sixties Godard, uh, you're probably not going to enjoy this very much, but I thought there was, I thought there was humor in it, and and it's kind of interesting to see Fonda Montand, who at times appear to be kind of improvising and doing off the cuff stuff, uh, you know, in, in a kind of a different uh, kind of context. But then, uh, and then fun with Dick and Jane, Jane Fonda and George Siegel are a married couple in this film, directed by Canadian Ted Kotcheff, and with a screenplay partially written by Mordecai Richler. So there's a Canadian connection there uh, to this film. And basically, Siegel gets laid off from his job as an engineer with an aerospace firm. Uh, Ed McMahon plays his boss, and he get, who uh, calls him into his office. McMahon plays drunk here, which is funny, but also kind of tragic, because McMahon had a drinking issue at the time, and basically fires him. And they're kind of left up to their eyeballs in debt and trying to figure out ways to 
make money to, you know, keep a roof over their heads, you know, while they're trying to live out the, the upper middle class dream in suburban California. And it's, uh, so it's got a lot of jokes, you know, about that, about, uh, you know, the economic climate in the seventies and the importance of, you know, keeping up appearances and all that. And, uh, they're very funny together. It is a seventies film. There are some stereotypes, uh, that you have to contend with, uh, especially with African-Americans. There is an interesting scene where Dick, uh, the, the Siegel character, uses a, a homophobic slur at the unemployment office and then gets totally schooled on it by the guy behind the desk who basically gives him a lecture on sexual politics. I thought, well, you know, it kind of sucks that Siegel's character has these kind of outdated uh, attitudes, but it's great to see him get a tongue lashing about it. So, you know, I guess in that sense, it's progressive. And, and Fonda does get to be funny, unlike in Kapaloo, uh, where she's just kind of running around and trying to keep the peace. Here she actually gets to be funny while looking like a very hip housewife in her denim pantsuit and her toe socks while she's doing yoga. And it, it's very 70s, uh, but it, it, it's very briskly dire- directed by Kotcheff, and uh, she gets to do some slapstick. And the there's some there's some fun dialogue, although it does verged a little bit on the sitcom-y kind of stuff. Uh, I guess it was enough of a hit that it was remade years later um, with uh, Jim Carrey and Taya Leone and uh, with a script by uh, Judd Apatow. I haven't watched that version. Uh, I think one version is enough for me. But uh, eventually they, they go into robbery. They go into a life of crime. And uh, ultimately it does crime does pay, which... Uh, maybe is not the message you might have got a decade or so before. But uh, if, if you're interested in seeing uh, Jane Fonda in a comedy that does have something to say about uh, the economic climate, but also is kind of conventional in a 1970s kind of way, this this is uh, this is not the worst way to spend some time, but she'd do it much better in nine to five a few years later. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So this episode of Lens Me Your Ears is focused upon the work of Jane Fonda. And now we're moving into the later 70s and a film called Julia. This earned uh, a Fonda another nomination from the good people at the Academy. And it won the uh, a nomination, won, I guess, Best Supporting Actress for Vanessa Redgrave in the film. It's directed by Fred Zinneman, who is one of those big production filmmakers, Day of the Jackal, From Here to Eternity, A Man for All Seasons. So he's kind of a reliable journeyman filmmaker. Uh, There is something very sort of 70s about this movie. You were talking earlier about uh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, about how, you know, a lot of films set in the 60s that are actually period films still feel like the 60s. Well, this this feels very much like the 70s in its production design. And that's unfortunate because some of that production design is a little cliched. I'm talking about the Vaseline on the lens. All the women uh, in the close-ups get this sort of 
fog around them, whereas the men don't, even when they're cutting back and forth between them in scenes. And it's very distracting, I found. Uh, Jason Robards looks, you can see every line in his face, but as soon as you cut back to Jane Fonda, you, you know, she's somehow lost in the fog. Um, I find that that kind of style, I'm glad that's sort of gone away. And uh, I think it's more associated with sort of, you know, 70s soft porn now. Uh, unfortunately, it did find its way into the mainstream. But that's not to say that the film doesn't have good things about it. Uh, it's about writer Lillian Hellman, who played by Fonda, and her friendship with Julia of the title, played by Vanessa Redgrave. And it, the film, at least partly, is about Redgrave. They're both come from well-off families, especially Redgrave. Her family is very wealthy, and she sort of gives all her money away to political causes in the 20s and 30s and eventually gets involved in the anti-Nazi uh, efforts uh, in, in Germany. And uh, she asks, even though she has a long period where she's not in touch with her very good friend, uh, Lillian, she asks her when she's traveling, Lillian becomes a famous playwright and uh, is traveling on a, on a tour through Europe on her way to Moscow. Uh, and Julia asks her to carry a package into Nazi Germany uh, for her as part of this effort. And uh, that's kind of the emotional core of the story. But there's a lot of other stuff that goes on before and some after this event. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see a film that sort of tackles class and and the history uh, at the time and how Julia was kind of criticized by the a lot of other people back home in the United States for what she was doing. Uh, Lillian Lillian's, uh, is, is an interesting character, but she's less interesting than Julia in some ways. She, she is uh, a writer. And, uh, you know, movies about writers, here's the thing that, that is interesting about that. I like movies about writers generally, but they tend to undercut the actual work involved in writing. They tend to find drama in the lives rather than in the work. And I understand that the sight of people typing away is rarely very exciting. Here we get Lillian writing a play and her, her partner... Uh, Dashiell Hammett, played by Jason Robards, saying to her after he reads one of her plays, uh, you know, you better tear that up. It's not very good. And then five, literally five minutes later in the running time, she writes something else and he goes, it's the best play anyone's written in a while, you know, and you, you don't see any of the sweat. <laughs> that went into that. Uh, suddenly, she just somehow gets inspired. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting film. I would say that the thing about it that frustrated me a little bit was that there is an obvious lesbian subtext between the two leads, but the film doesn't have the courage of its convictions to go ahead and make a text. Though I understand that they were working from a book that is at least semi-autobiographical and maybe it wasn't explicit in the original story. I'm not sure. Um, I think there's been some controversy over how much of this is based on fact, but uh, there is enough entertainment value in the film to go back and watch it. If you're able to find it, we, I watched, I was, I just stumbled upon a DVD of it up uh, at a used store in here in Halifax in Bedford select sounds, which has a terrific selection of old DVDs and Blu-rays incidentally. But um, it isn't, I don't think it's easy to find, but uh, Steven, you, you didn't rewatch it, but you have seen it before. What was your thoughts on, on Julia? Yeah, I saw it on TCM. They tend to show it uh, every now and again. And, uh, probably the only reason i still have cable maybe i'm kind of a dinosaur in that regard but they do frequently show things that can't be seen anywhere else so it's it's it to me it's it's worth it for that anyway for the time being while the uh 
the streaming universe still appears to be fairly tone deaf to the needs of classic film fans. Uh, and, you know, I, I was intrigued because I was such a big Dashiell Hammett fan and intrigued by his relationship with Lillian Hellman, this on again, off again, uh, kind of romance, friendship, companionship uh, thing they had going on uh, at the time. Uh, so it was interesting to see that portrayed on screen. Uh, but uh, I feel like uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a waxworks this film that that uh, that Fred Zinneman may not have been the best director for this material uh, and certainly not at this stage of his career in the late 70s um, after kicking around Hollywood for for quite a while so I feel like there's a story here that I could be more intrigued by if it had a little more life in the direction there are scenes of it that are extremely effective any of the scenes that take place in Nazi Germany for example are are fairly riveting and and you know made me glad that I watched it but you know I, I I feel like it's got a bit of a glaze on it not just on the lens but that that it's 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 uh it's, <laughs> yeah it's, it's a bit more kind of syrupy than I would have liked and uh I think even at the time that it came out it was kind of accused of being Oscar bait um you know as as a movie that the reviews uh a lot of them were not very kind you know that the uh one reviews call it beautifully crafted and a dramatic dud uh if you like red nail polish faux cynicism brave painfully brave smiles and european train stations julia may be your, your kind of cocktail that's one, one of the reviews and and uh and ebert felt that the relationship between um lillian and julia was could have been better defined as as you say um but it did win three oscars it, you know for uh, the supporting uh roles for vanessa redgrave and jason robards as um Dashiell Hammett and also uh, the screenplay uh, adapted screenplay won a, won an Oscar so it was a triple winner um, so I guess the Oscar bait uh, took hold in that case yeah yeah and I'm a little surprised uh, maybe it wasn't a great year otherwise I mean it's it is still worth seeing but those aspects of it that have dated it all have to do with the cliches of 70s mainstream cinema and and yeah and probably it's politics as well to some degree um, but uh, you know uh, sometimes sometimes a film can uh, supersede its era I don't know that the China syndrome does uh, that's my clumsy way to segue <laughs> between the movies, but um, you know it uh, it does have something again to recommend it. So I guess in that way it does have things in common with Julia. Um, oh, you know I forgot to mention Julia. Julia. One other thing worth seeing it for is it's Meryl Streep's first role in 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 a film. She's barely in it, but she is. If you're a, a Streep completist, it's it's worth a look. Uh, she plays a character, a not very likable character in the film. Um, but the China Syndrome was direct by James Bridges and in it Fonda plays Kimberly Wells she's a TV reporter looking she's doing you know uh, lifestyle pieces in California but she's looking into nuclear power uh, with Michael Douglas as Richard her camera person and uh Jack Lemmon plays Jack Goodell, the manager at a California nuclear plant, and Wilford Brimley is one of his his uh, technicians. This is kind of a journalism thriller. It's good to see it. I, I wouldn't say it's in the realm of all the president's men, which you mentioned earlier, or Spotlight, certainly, but it's not bad. Um, so yeah, so Kimberly and Richard are doing a piece on the wonders of nuclear power when they witness a problem at the plant, and Richard surreptitiously gets some film, but the bosses at the station don't want to do anything about they don't want to air it because because he 
he got it without the permission of the plant managers, uh, they could be sued if they air it, even though what they saw, what the the film proves is that there was an accident at the plant. Um, so Richard, uh, frustrated by this, he steals the film for himself and Kimberly tries to track him down. And then she conveniently stumbles into a bar where she meets Jack Lemon's character who insists that there was no accident at the plant, but the company that made the power plant wants to bring another one online and they need the energy hearings to go well. So they want to basically cover up the fact that there was any kind of problem. And uh, and Jack the character Jack Lemon's character finds starts to find that his concerns are being ignored. So you've got this conspiracy at the power plant to cover up problems. You've got a couple of journalists looking for a story and also looking to to do more meaty stuff because really most journalism movies are about um, you know journalists who are doing arts reporting and they don't want to do that. They want to make a difference. You know that's a bit of a cliche. <laughs> so that's part of the reason why this this isn't nearly as good as those other films I mentioned uh, because that gets a bit tiresome to be honest. Some of us want to do arts reporting. You know that's okay. <laughs> I want to see that movie where the arts re- where there's an investigative reporter who is like I just want to tell stories of passionate people making creative work. Uh, but anyway, that's that's a whole other thing. Uh, uh, there's, 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 and there's this good guy. I mean, Lemon really has the most affecting role as this guy who believes in the work he's doing, but doesn't want to toe the party line. I find it, I found it suspenseful. I thought it was well shot and well edited, and it came out weeks before the accident at Three Mile Island, Pennsylvania. So it wound up being remarkably prophetic. Um, yeah, what did you make of the China Syndrome, Stephen? Yeah, I think that uh, that timing of it is might uh, might be what kind of ensconces this in in film history as much as anything. But I, this is this is likely the first sort of major film that I saw uh, Jane Fonda in, and I think she's she's very good as the reporter Kimberly Wells, who's rushing to keep up with the the technology of the job as well as cover this uh, you know burgeoning disaster at the nuclear power plant, and it can't really shake its uh, '70s origins. But I find it works very well as kind of a thriller that does have a, a political agenda. Of course, Jane Fonda did become involved in the no nukes uh, movement uh, around the same time or in the wake of this film. Uh, so there is that kind of timely aspect to it, which, which I, I enjoyed. And, and, and Lemon is very good. Uh, you know, he's kind of the heart and soul of the film as, as uh, the whistleblower, I guess, who, um, you know, has to pay the price for, for wanting to, to alert the public to, to what's really happening. And, but of course this film, I, I feel it was superseded by Silkwood, which is a better film. Right. Um, right. As for far sure. as actual filmmaking goes, but, but this is this pretty landmark film. It's not like we, saw nuclear power mentioned in films a lot prior to this moment and i think it opened a lot of eyes uh, at the time now we only have a few minutes left Stephen, do you want to say something about the morning after because i know you watched that that's also on this criterion channel collection um i haven't seen it um you know and i i gather it's uh well it's it, it was another academy award nomination for for fonda what did you think of it yeah i i think if you're going to watch another uh Fonda film from the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, I would go with Coming Home, which uh, you know, which she did win for, and uh, which is available. It's not part of the package on Criterion, but it's it's not a hard film to track down. And I saw it on TCM. It, it's uh, we we didn't watch it for this show, but it's a very affecting film. And she and John Voight, I think, both won Oscars for it. And Bruce Dern shows up as well as her husband, who's returning from Vietnam, as she gets involved with a, a wounded Vietnam vet, and it's it's and directed by Hal Ashby. It's it's a wonderful film. Uh, the, this film, which we did watch, which is part of the Criterion package, 
is not so wonderful. Uh, it's it's yeah. I, I this is I always felt this is one of those films that I just should get around to seeing. It's directed by Sidney Lumet, who is of course a terrific director. You know, certainly a legend for films like Dog Day Afternoon and and Serpico. Uh, it's got a great cast: Jane Fonda, Jeff Bridges, Raúl Julia plays uh, her hairdresser ex husband uh, in a in a very kind of winning role and. It just uh, it, it's almost as soon as it starts, it kind of falls apart as uh, Jane Fonda plays a woman with a drinking problem who just who wakes up in bed next to a man who's uh, turns out to be murdered. She has no recollection of what happened. Um, she has to kind of piece piece things together, kind of like the hangover, really, but as a murder thriller. Um, and, you know, she she teams up with this ex cop. She just happens to meet at the Los Angeles airport while she's trying to evade the police um she meets a jeff bridges plays turner kendall who's this kind of bakersfield kind of hick cop who's always working on old cars who's also kind of mildly racist (laughs) and 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 that's supposed to be kind of a charming trait which kind of throws you off right off the bat when he starts throwing out um racial slurs and you're kind of like okay is he testing her or what but no it turns out that he's, that's just how he talks and uh and somehow we're supposed to find it charming i think uh and and that kind of sets a tone for a film that just keeps getting more and more implausible as it goes along so un- unfortunately my hopes for this uh, film being interesting given the talent involved uh, proved to be uh shattered uh, fairly quickly but uh and, and then the actual thriller part of it is fairly implausible as well so not one of the stronger films in fonda's career uh you know obviously it worked for her it got her an oscar nomination and she does have some strong scenes there's, there's a moment where she breaks down and she kind of hits bottom and and of course she excels at it and she's wonderful in that scene but the movie that surrounds it is uh, pretty forgettable <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, looking at the work of Jane Fonda. So many more films you could enjoy, uh, films I'm still looking forward to see, like Stanley and Iris, the film she made with Robert De Niro. Uh, she she took like 15 years off from acting in the 90s, the Ted Turner years, but uh, then she came back with Monster-in-Law with Jennifer Lopez. These, these you know, there's there's far further you could go, and uh, and I'm looking forward to, to that personally, I will say. Uh, now, Lens Me Your Ears, if you would like to reach out to us and give us your feedback, we would welcome that. Or if you have suggestions for maybe subjects that we could be talking about, films that we could watch, um, we have a Facebook page and we're also on Twitter as Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Flaw in the Iris. That's the name of my film blog. And Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. Yes, you can find me at, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Many thanks to CKDU uh, for airing our this show every second Tuesday at 5.30. That's CKDU 88.1 in Halifax. And also for the studio facilities when we have the chance to use them in non-pandemic times. Uh, And many thanks also to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thank you again for listening and we'll be talking about movies again soon. See you then. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.